chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, you'll get, word, get used to those uh, five little words. Please open your Bibles, or please turn with me in your Bibles. Anyone who stands in this pulpit uh, is called to preach God's Word and nothing except for God's Word. Um, that's relevant to our passage this morning, so I, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible in your pew Bibles, it's uh, page 1200, page 1200. So please stand if you are able for the reading of God's Word in James chapter 3. This is James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, may we humble ourselves this morning in your sight so that you might lift us up. Show us the grace of Jesus for people who are quick to speak and slow to hear. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let me remind you as we begin the main point that James argues in this passage. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach... It's okay. I feel like that too sometimes. <laughs> I actually just want to pause and say that is a great interruption to a service. We want to hear the voice of little ones in a service. All right? Let's back up a little bit. Let me remind you as we begin, James' point, what is he arguing in this passage? He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, during my time serving in Cuba, I had the opportunity to preach in many different churches, uh, many different kinds of churches. Not always churches I might naturally choose to visit or partner with, uh, but my policy is if I'm given a pulpit, then I'll take it and preach Christ. So that's what I did. Uh, once I had the opportunity to preach at this church, and, and I say this as graciously as I can, uh, the whole service was a sham. That's not being too harsh. That's not just me being a grumpy Presbyterian. Uh, it was emotionalism and manipulation, and it was, it was just manipulative. It was horrible. Um, 
the worship, the singing, and then the pastor got up before they collected the offering. And he made a big speech about how they had just received a five-figure donation from a church in the U.S. And then he told the story of the widow's mites. Remember that story? The widow who goes to the temple to pray and she puts her two little coins in the offering at the temple. Jesus and his disciples looking on. And then this pastor lowered his voice and he looked at the congregation and said, everyone turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is watching you. Right before the offering was collected. That's evil. I was not okay with that. And I had to get up and speak after this. So what do you say after something like that? I knew what I wanted to say, but I was also a guest in this church. So I looked out at these poor people who clearly uh, were under the thumb of wicked rulers from everything I could see. And I read Galatians 1.3, which says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I quoted from the reformer Martin Luther, who said, Grace and peace, these two little words constitute Christianity. It's what Christianity is all about. And I explained why. And this congregation of maybe 300 people just stared at me like I had three heads. They had no idea what I was talking about. It was kind of jarring to look at so many people ostensibly called into a place where they would hear the message of the gospel, but that's not what they were used to hearing. That's a horrible condemnation on a preaching ministry. And it's relevant to James's exhortation, not many of you should become teachers because of the strict judgment to come on those who twist the scripture and abuse the flock. And we're going to look today at James's warning about the desire to teach. We'll look at what that means. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's important to understand everything that he means when he says that. And then we're going to consider two more supporting points that he makes. Uh, additional warnings about, more broadly speaking, the danger of the tongue, the danger of immature, ungodly, even demonic speech. Remember, when James calls out where we go wrong uh, in his letter, he's He's evaluating uh, the life of the Christian uh, according to the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And this lack of maturity and our growing maturity in the ways of Jesus, uh, it shows up in the way we talk. It shows up in our speech. Humble faith shows up in your speech. So three warnings, uh, all warnings that we need to heed while at the same time clinging by humble faith to the hope that's ours in Jesus. Uh, first warning, a warning about the desire to teach. Secondly, a warning about the destructive tongue. And thirdly, a warning about expressing devotion to God and then despising others. So three warnings, the first of which is this, a warning about the desire to teach. Again, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So I want to explain this point, uh, really this verse, by making two points. And then I want us to consider a question about the strict judgment James is talking about. I'll say right now, a friend, that I think teacher in this passage refers to the office of teacher in the early church, uh, something that's fulfilled now in the elders who teach and preach in public worship. Uh, more on that when we consider the judgment James is talking about. But first, two quick points about the pitfalls of being a teacher. First, teachers say a lot of words, and every word will be judged. Proverbs 10:19 says that when words are many, what does it say? Sin abounds. 
When words are many, sin abounds. That presents a problem for teachers because teachers say a lot of words. I've already said a lot of words this morning. Uh, let's, let's say the Lord gives a pastor like me the grace to fulfill this calling in good health and faithfulness for the next maybe, I don't know, 30 years. Maybe with the Lord's help, that's what I have in me. Uh, that's a lot of Sundays. That's a lot of Sunday school lessons. That's a lot of session meetings, a lot of seminars, a lot of counseling sessions. I think every pastor looks out over their calling, stretching out before them, and it's like that, you remember that old window screensaver where the stars are just kind of flying at you, going past you? I know some of you are thinking, yes, I do, but how do you remember that one? That's fair enough, but you know, the stars are whizzing past you and it's kind of mesmerizing as they get bigger and bigger and it's this never-ending star field. Uh, that's kind of how I think pastors look out over their calling. If you think about all of the opportunities to mess up, uh, to say a careless word, to uh, mess up a sermon, whether by not having the time to put in the work or not making good use of your time, uh, letting your own opinions or frustrations or half-baked ideas slip in, or preaching a great sermon and then getting grumpy with your wife and kids at home. So many opportunities to fall short. So pray for pastors, would you? Uh, Matthew 12, 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account, this is everyone, for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. Faith vindicated by words and works. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So that's a point that's especially poignant for teachers uh, and preachers. But don't think that if you're not a teacher or a preacher, that lets you off the hook. Uh, all of us, I think, need to consider the dangers of an uncontrolled tongue, the dangers of having a platform with which to speak many, many, many words. Moms, dads, have you spoken a lot of words this week? Students, as you interact with your classmates and you pursue, pursue your studies and you talk with your teachers and you write, you, you say a lot of words, right? And you write a lot of words. Uh, phone calls, texting, Facebook, Twitter X, whatever social media uh, we're furiously sending our words out into the world with. Uh, Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist, he made a great point that we live near a city that virtually traffics in words. Judge for every careless word is serious business. We need to be aware that our words, our speech, it gives evidence to the humble faith that we have in Christ. It gives evidence, it vindicates that faith that we say we have. It vindicates that faith in direct proportion to how the good works our faith produces show up in the way we talk and in the way we speak. The maturity with which we speak words and wisdom and grace. So take James's words to heart. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So that's one part of the warning about this desire to teach. Uh, the second thing, uh, teachers, teachers in the church are to speak God's words, and doing anything but that is dangerous. It's dangerous. If that first point was about the quantity of words that teachers speak, uh, this point is about the quality of words that a teacher is called to speak. It goes to that stricter judgment that he points to. Teachers in the church are to speak God's words after him. And when we stray from that, it's harmful. Paul told young pastor Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So by the Holy Spirit, that's encouraging. Uh, but its command to those who teach is challenging. Guard 
the good deposit entrusted to you. This is why I said at the outset uh, that turn with me in your Bibles is an important thing uh, to be part of the life of a church. Uh, It's what made that illustration about the pastor who uh, guilted his congregation before the offering so heinous, so horrible. As teachers, we're to guard the good deposit. We're to keep the pattern of sound teaching. But following the wisdom from below, following worldly wisdom, some pastors speak out of selfish ambition. Others clamor for a platform to speak with bitter jealousy or self-righteous judgment, hypocritically wagging their finger at others. So hear these words from Jesus in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. That is, obey the truth that you hear them speak. Do that, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when they become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Harsh words from Jesus. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So all of that applies to teachers especially, but it's not without application uh, to us. But there's a question I want us to think about now. The question's this. It'll lead into the rest of the passage. Is this stricter judgment that James talks about, is it mainly about teachers who mess up, or is it about wrong, is it about wrong motives? Could it be about the motives that a teacher has? I haven't yet explained why I understand teachers uh, to be this church role. So let me do that now. It probably refers to this role in the early church, one we read about in other New Testament passages, the same word is used. And that role is kind of rolled up, if I can say so, into the calling of a pastor teacher or an elder who teaches. Uh, Most of that, most modern commentators, people looking at that today, would say that that's what this is about. That's what this word is referring to. When Paul writes of elders in 1 Timothy 3.2, he says they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. However, uh, older authors, let's say from the time of the Reformation up to the Puritans, uh, maybe John Calvin up to Thomas Manton, who's a great work on James, uh, many back then in earlier times didn't see this passage that way. They understood it to mean something like this. Not many of you should set yourselves up as judgmental people who point their fingers at others all the time. That's interesting, isn't it? That's a little bit different uh, than the concept of not many should become a teacher in the church. And I think it's really interesting, especially in light of what James seems to be calling out this church scattered among the nations about. James 1, 19 through 20, remember what it says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. James 2, 12 to 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So here's the thing. I think that uh, these older commentators, these older writers, were working from a mistaken translation of James 3.1. I do think that we should take this to mean teachers 
uh, their Bibles that they were reading, their translation said masters. And they kind of ran in that direction. But I don't think they're completely wrong. I think the impulse is right. I think they're onto something in the context of what James is saying. Wanting to be a teacher, wanting this role, a platform by which to either pursue their own selfish ambition or through bitter jealousy and this judgmental spirit that you see condemned throughout James to lord that over other people. Something along the lines of Matthew 7, 1 to 5, when Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. James, who often speaks his older brother Jesus' words after him, he says in 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, I think that's what this is about. And I think it brings it closer to home. This isn't just a sermon about preachers and teachers. Because who among us hasn't ever wanted a bullhorn? Right? A bullhorn. So you can walk up to that person, and you have that person in mind, that person you think is wrong, that person that you want to tell them all about how they're wrong, just lay on that buzzer and yell into the bullhorn and let them know just how far they fall short. I mean, who among us hasn't wanted that? I think that gets at the problem James is addressing. One recent commentary puts it this way. When James urges individuals in the Messianic community not to become teachers, he may not be concerned so much with the number of teachers or even with the candidates for teaching as he is with the impact of too many talking and teaching in irresponsible, unloving ways because of that motivation. Why shouldn't we do that? Well, because of what James says. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those are Jesus' words. So do you really want to be measured by that standard? The standard of your own heart? The standard you hold over others that you don't even meet yourself? Not so fast, James says. Teachers will be held to strict judgment. But so will those who judge others when they haven't considered how they so often go wrong. We see that in what follows. So that's the first big point in the passage. We'll make up time now. Uh, but there's the warning about the desire to teach. Now we're going to see the warning about the destructive tongue. Maybe we shouldn't judge too quickly. And James includes himself saying, we, we all stumble in many ways. Did you catch that? That's some encouragement. If James stumbles in many ways, then maybe he's not shouting at us through his own bullhorn. If James stumbles in many ways, maybe he knows he's part of the problem. Uh, the fourth century church historian Eusebius, he said James was nicknamed Old Camel Knees. I'm kind of jealous. That's way better than Dan. Old Camel Knees. Because he kneeled so much in prayer. And maybe this is why. Maybe he realized how much he needed this same grace that we all need James has just talked about uh, earlier in chapter 2 about how our faith is vindicated by our works. And now he says, let's talk about how you talk. They thought they were going to get away with a generalization, right? We love it when we're called out generally. But James says, let's talk about how you talk. 
Maybe our words are the easiest way to tell if we're living by humble faith and if that's maturing in the way we live. James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man or a mature man. He's a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, how they are so large and driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of many great things. Just like we can put a bit uh, in a horse's mouth, right? And we can move them with the bridle and the reins. Just a little thing like the tongue can make a big difference. And it's certainly possible to refrain the tongue. Proverbs 13.3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. In the words of Mark Twain, he said, better to remain silent and thought a fool, you know how it finishes, than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt, right? Being quiet is a gift. It comes more naturally to some people than to others. Uh, Some people do it really well. It's said of the U.S. President Calvin Coolidge that a young woman sitting next to Coolidge at a dinner party uh, confided to him or told him that she had a bet She had a bet with her friends that she could get him to say at least three words of conversation. Without even looking at her, he quietly said, you lose. (laughs) It comes easier to some people, but when it comes to really controlling the tongue, really refraining our tongue, not with perfection, but with maturity, out of humble faith in Jesus, uh, we could say that James is making the point here that speech uh, seasoned with maturity, with humble faith, that produces Uh, this maturity in us. It's this indication that we're being matured by faith, not just in speech, but in everything. You bridle the tongue, you bridle the body. It's an indication. If speech is so crucial, then mature speech is an important aspect, an indication of this maturity that humble faith produces. But even a bridled horse can spook and buck a rider. my, My granddad is the cowboy in the family, and he has horses, and he had a horse that had been ill, so I guess he used like a high-protein block instead of a salt block for this horse. Uh, Well, one day when the horse was doing just fine, he put the high-protein block out there again instead of the salt block. It was like he gave the horse an energy bar. And so he gets on the horse, and it takes off with him, bucks the rider, he lands on a fence post and bruises his tailbone. That's a really bad day. But the tongue can do something like that. James goes on to show the destructive power of the tongue. Speech seasoned with the maturity of humble faith produces, uh, it shows this maturity. Uh, But immature speech wreaks havoc everywhere it goes. We know this by experience, but James paints a picture for us. Hear what he says. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Uh, Living for as long as we did in Southern California, uh, I know some of you have lived there too, this was vivid. It's vivid imagery for me. I remember uh, when I was in college, fires closed in on all the ridges around Placerita Canyon. We were up in the student lounge at night and one of my friends was fiddling, looking out the window. We thought it was ironic. But we were kind of scared that the the firefighters wouldn't get there in time. Thankfully, they were able to beat back the fires. Uh, They rescued our campus. 
But at the end of the day, there are times when the fire is going to rip through your life. You won't be able to hold it back. James describes the result as a scorched soul. He says it can set the entire course of your life on fire. Uh, One older writer I read this week said, it's hard for a ruler uh, to rule a small part of the world. How much more so to rule the tongue, which James calls a world of unrighteousness. Anyone discouraged yet? Hopefully you're getting the hang of this. When I ask if you're discouraged yet, it means that we're about to hear the good news of the gospel. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, I thought we could mature in our speech. I thought humble faith and the grace of God in Christ would overcome my destructive speech. Well, it will. It can. I think there's a glimmer of hope in what James says about taming wild animals. Look there with me. James says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. I think this is clearly hyperbole. I'm not sure every kind of beast has been tamed. I don't think James had been around very many cats, for example. Uh, But theoretically, James says it's possible. You can tame an animal. You can tame a wild beast or reptile. Not so with the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. But the African church father, Augustine, points to the hope in this. He says it's not that no one can tame the tongue. Notice that. It doesn't say no one can tame the tongue. It's just that no human being can tame the tongue. The verse actually reads something like this. No one can tame the tongue among humans. That's like a little cliffhanger of hope. Is there not hope in the gospel accounts of Jesus? What did they say about Jesus? No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus was human like us, but he was no mere human. He is truly God and truly man. And as man, he spoke perfectly. He never misspoke. He was the perfect man in the fullest sense, able to bridle everything about himself, tongue, heart, life, all of it. And he did it for us. Because he is God in human flesh, he spoke perfectly and maturely and humbly all the way to the cross. And he did that for you. He did it for your rescue. So hold on to that thought as we consider one final warning. It really gets to the heart of the matter. It gets to the level at which we need the grace of God in Jesus, of whom it was said no one ever spoke like this man. So we've seen the warning about the desire to teach, the warning about the destructive tongue, now the warning about expressing devotion to God, and then going and despising others. Look with me again at the last half of verse 8 and following. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Many point to this part of the text, and I think they're right, uh, saying that this is a warning in the context of worship. In the context of worship. This brings James' case to church with us this morning. We've sung hymns and praise today. Uh, We've prayed. We're sitting under the word. And then in just a little while, we're going to go out from this place, and in all likelihood, sinners that we are, we're going to run someone over with our speech. Barner puts it really well. He says, after solemn worship in the house of God... The professed worshiper can go forth with feelings of malice in his heart 
And the language of praise can turn quickly to that of provocation. Maybe we could say this. Right now, today, in this room, we're saying blessing, honor, glory, and might be unto our God forever and ever. And then we leave here and we say bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Monday through Friday. That's a spring that bubbles up with fresh water and salt water from the same source. How can that be, James says? That's a fig tree bearing olives, a grapevine producing figs. It's like trying to draw a cup of refreshing water from the Atlantic Ocean. How can this be? It's not natural. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 24, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's the answer? Where's the hope? Well, we've seen this before. James is driving at the two ways to live, right? He's driving at two ways to live. We're going to look at that more next week. We're to live by heavenly wisdom and not the wisdom from below. But is there any hope for people who stumble in many ways? Well, there is. Our only hope is to stand before a holy God and to humble ourselves and receive the grace that he gives. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We need something that's outside of ourselves. We come to God empty and he lifts us and fills us with his grace. I remind you of Isaiah 6, which we looked at last week in the confession of sin. This is where there's hope for people with unclean lips and immature speech. He stands before God in his holy throne room and he sees the seraphim covering their eyes and their hands and their feet with their wings. The holy angels can't even stand exposed before this holy God. And what does he say? Isaiah 6, 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even Isaiah realized he was undone before the Lord, and he needed the Lord's mercy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. But there is hope for Isaiahs like us. There is hope for us to be saved from the fires of hell and the fires of the tongue, and that hope is in the fires of the altar. That hope is the burning coal brought from outside of Isaiah, brought to him, carried to touch his lips and to cleanse him with something he didn't have, but that he needed. The purification of sins provided from outside of you, for you, by the one of whom it was said, no one spoke like this man. No one spoke like this man. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did it for you. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, and that perfect sacrifice is brought to you from the altar to cleanse you of your sin. Only faith in that perfect life and that sacrificial death and that person who is for you can rescue you from the dangers and the evils of an untamed tongue. And only a faith like that can produce in you the fruit of righteousness, speech that is seasoned with grace, because you've received that grace from him. Let's pray together. Father, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.